0: After Jesus dealt with his critics, those who opposed him, and after saying what he needed to say to them about himself, about who he was, we were told at the end of chapter 10 that he went away beyond the Jordan to the place where John first baptized, and there he abode. So that, that's important for us to, to know today. But we're getting nearer to the Lord Jesus last week, which of course culminates with his death on the cross and his resurrection from the tomb. <clears throat> now, in our study of the first 11 chapters, the 11th, which are, uh, we are beginning today, we have seen Jesus' ministry being defined. Defined by the Holy Spirit's selective use of seven miracles which John records. It doesn't mean that he only did seven, but it just means that these seven were selected for a very important reason. And the seventh is described here in this chapter. But in reviewing the previous signs or miracles, it is important for us to, to actually go back and, and review what those are. So we begin with Jesus turning water into wine in John chapter 2. So this was his first sign, the first miracle in the Gospel of John. And what this reveals symbolically was the mission of the Messiah. And the mission of the Messiah was to change the empty way of man's religion into a joyous living relationship with the Lord, demonstrated by the fact that it took place, first of all, at a wedding feast, but then, when there was a great need for wine because they had run out of wine, Jesus took these large containers of water and he changed the water into wine. Of course, that says a lot about his power. But it also, it also gives us this, this symbolic indication that a religion is empty without Christ. And so there is going from water to the wine and it represents that which actually would bring joy to that community and certainly during the time of a wedding feast. The second miracle or sign was the healing of a nobleman's son which took place in John chapter 4. And in Jesus healing the son of this nobleman from Capernaum when at a 20-mile distance from the sun, this act showed the pure simplicity of God's grace on Jesus' part, but it also showed the simple faith of a man who simply took Jesus at his word. What a wonderful picture of being saved by grace through faith. And so Jesus demonstrates grace and gives us the opportunity to trust in him. The third miracle is found in chapter 5, where Jesus heals the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. Now this healing symbolizes the deficiency of the law in healing people from physical, but more importantly, spiritual infirmities. But showing us the need for a savior it does show us the need for someone. The law leaving people at the edge of salvation, just like the man was left at the edge of the pool and had no one to help him into the pool to be healed at the moment that uh, the water was stirred. But Christ showing us that we're hopeless and helpless without him. And then comes the feeding of the 5,000 men and their families in John chapter six. And this is really the only sign or miracle before the resurrection that is recorded in all four gospels. Jesus demonstrated his promise that if we seek his kingdom and his righteousness, all of our needs will be met. And of course, when you think about each and every one of these uh, miracles, Again, you cannot overlook the fact that Jesus has power to accomplish them. Jesus has power to bring them about. And then comes the fifth miracle, which is Jesus walking on the water. Again, in John chapter 6, it was a very simple thing that Jesus said to his disciples, you go to the other side, I'll meet you over there. And as they got into the boat, and uh, as they got into the middle of the Sea of Galilee, that the wind started coming, and there were all kinds of waves happening and fear in them, and Jesus walked on the water to them and uh, calmed the sea, brought them to shore. And very simply, without Jesus, we struggle to make any headway whatsoever in this life. Now let me ask you this, would you find that to be true? Now, without Jesus, we, we struggle to make any headway whatsoever in this life. So with him, in our midst every day, we can make it to our life's intended shores, no matter what storm we face. And I can tell you this, we'll all face storms today. We will all face storms tomorrow. We have faced storms to get here where we are now. And yet, we're here because of God's mercy and God's grace and because of the presence of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. And then the sixth sign, healing the man born blind in John chapter 9. This incident revealed in a way how a blind man could see more clearly than the blind religious leaders who refused to acknowledge what was manifestly evident before them in the things that Jesus did And said of himself, those who were supposed to be wise in the word of God, those who were supposed to be wise in the scriptures, were completely blind to the things that Jesus was saying and doing, and they missed who he was, and they criticized him, and and they chastised him, and they ostracized him. And they were doing that to the Messiah of Israel. But there was another lesson that we find of importance to us in the healing of the man born blind. Because at first the man doesn't know who Jesus really is. I don't know who he he is or was or what he's ever done, but one thing I know, once I was blind, he said, but now I see But then he gets to know who Jesus is. And so in the end, it wasn't claiming to know about Jesus that mattered. It was about knowing him personally. So that particular healing, that particular sign, gives us that understanding that it isn't knowing about Jesus that really matters in our life. There's a lot of people who know about Jesus. The only thing that really matters is that you know him. Personally, and by the way that he knows you and that he knows you by name and that you know that he loves you and cares for you and of course within the next few weeks we will see the impact of the seventh miracle and sign of Jesus in this chapter and we will certainly learn its valuable lesson for us But to the point that these signs were given, John wrote this near the end of the gospel and I want you to turn there and read this with me. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, because once again, why these signs? Why did these things happen? What were they all about? And in verse 30, John writes, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Some of them, of course, were written in the other Gospels. But John was saying that if he were to have written everything about it, there wouldn't be enough volumes to fill. But then he says this, and the reason now in verse 31, but these are written, these signs here in this book are written that you might believe that Yeshua is the Mashiach, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So notice, it isn't just about believing that Jesus is the Son of God and is the Messiah, but that believing you might have life through his name. You might have eternal life through his name. I mean, as far as I can tell, you have life. You're here this morning, and some of you are barely breathing. Just kidding. I just want to make sure you're hearing me. Now you're breathing. I can tell. And you came in pretty lively this morning. What well, kind of lively? Well, almost lively. All right. <laughs> but that's not the life we're talking about, is it? He says, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Now, most of us know that this 11th chapter of John's Gospel contains the account of the raising of Lazarus from the dead and becomes, as the seventh chosen sign, the climactic miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. Let me say that again. I'm just a little distracted here for a second. So most of us know that, that this 11th chapter of John's Gospel contains the account of the raising of Lazarus from the dead and becomes, as the seventh chosen sign, the climactic miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. He had raised others from the dead. But his dear friend Lazarus had been buried for four days. There should have been no question with the Jewish religious leaders that Jesus was indeed the Messiah of Israel after raising Lazarus from the dead. I mean, they they wouldn't be able to deny it, nor could they avoid it they couldn't deny it because certainly they would have known about Lazarus being sick and getting to the point of death and eventually dying and then doing what well being put into a a tomb covered by a major stone you know so they couldn't deny it and nor could they avoid it because certainly in the town of Bethany not far from Jerusalem, those who would have known this family, would have been there for the burial. So they couldn't have avoided it. Now the Apostle Paul, in in, in the first chapter of Romans, points this out. He says it in verses 3 and 4. He says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, This is what he says in verse 4. And declared to be the Son of God with power, notice, with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now, keep your your focus on the word dead here. Because most Greek scholars point out the fact that the word for dead in the Greek, which is the word nekros, N-E-K-R-O-S, is actually the plural form. And would would read more clearly in this manner, that it, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of Holiness by the resurrection of the dead people or the dead ones. So when you think of the of, of the of the tens being plural, there has to be that understanding, and what it does is suggest strongly, of course that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power, not only triumphing over death for himself, which he did. Uh, There's no doubt about that, and there's no doubt in Paul's mind that that's that's part of what he means. But to use that particular word the way he does, takes into account others raised from the dead, including Lazarus. And then think about this. There was also the daughter of Jairus of Capernaum in Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8 who was raised from the dead, and the son of the widow of Nain in Luke chapter 7, who was raised from the dead, not to mention those who rose from the graves at the death of Jesus on the cross. Because when Jesus died on the cross, we are told in the Gospel of Matthew that first of all, the veil in the temple or the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to to bottom, and the very next verse tells us, and graves were opened, and those who were in them came out alive. So then, with that power in mind, consider this, if you will, that if Jesus is unable to do anything about death, if Jesus is unable to do anything about death, then whatever else he can do, ultimately it will amount to nothing. If he has no power over death. And why do I say that? Because I want you to think of the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. Because see, Paul took that into consideration as well. He said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, which means in this life only and not a life to come, but if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. As if Jesus only lived for us for today. And when this day is over, when this life is over, then it's over, and you turn the light off and, you know, go to sleep for the rest of whatever. So if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But what does Paul go on to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? He talks about death. And of course he talks about Resurrection. And he makes certain arguments in certain ways. I'm not going to cover them all, but I want to say this. What he says about death is this. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26, he says, The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Consider that for just a moment in a few different ways. First of all, he calls death our enemy. It became our enemy when man sinned in the garden. And I can, I can hear you, you guys thinking, oh no, he's going back to Genesis chapter 3. Yes. How often do we go back there to remember what has happened to us? Why this world is in the condition that it's in. Why we've had to battle over all of these things just to come to know the wondrous salvation that is in Jesus Christ. But it was there in that garden that, that, that man fell in sin. And if you remember exactly what God had told the man, what God had told Adam, he said, listen, you can have this garden and everything that's in this garden except for one tree. And you can eat from the fruit of this whole garden except for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because on the day that you eat of that fruit, you will die. And death was introduced into this world. So first of all, you see, death is an enemy. But then he says the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And that brings us to the understanding that even today, even as believers in Jesus Christ, we have life eternal. We know that if we indeed die, we will be with him. And we go on living, certainly a different way, but we're going to go on living. And we'll be in the very presence of our creator. We'll be in the very presence of the one who loved us, so much that he gave himself for us, that he died first for us to conquer sin and death. And this is the reason why, between now and the time that Jesus comes, there will be death, and death is always painful, whether we know the person is a believer or not. Death is always painful. But I want you to consider something. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51, go almost down to the end of that chapter. It's a long chapter, obviously. And he says, behold, I show you a mystery, verse 51. I show you a mystery. In fact, you know what, let me, let me do something I didn't do last night, but I'm going to do it here this, this morning, is, is read to you verse 50 as well. Go back, it won't be up, but just, just bear with me. Paul said, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Now he says, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound, or the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. And Paul is talking about the rapture of the church. There's there's no question here. But then he goes on and says, For this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. Why? Because we cannot inherit the kingdom of God in flesh and blood. And then he says, So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. Again, going back to that initial sin in the garden that has stained us all. The sting of death is sin. Death hurts because of sin. And the strength of sin is the law. The law tells us about sin and makes it clear why death has taken place. But thanks be to God, which giveth us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus died on our behalf. He took death seriously and he took death for us. But we know that he conquered death initially by rising from the dead. And therefore, if we believe in him, And become true believers in Jesus Christ. Then the promise of resurrection will be ours. And whether we die or we get taken by Jesus at the rapture of the church. We will be with him. And we'll talk more about that later. But let's go on to our text. Because I bet you get thinking, how come we haven't read the text yet? Okay, we're getting there. So at this particular time now, getting into chapter 11. Jesus was being rejected by A lot of people, but almost everyone. More and more people were beginning to reject him. Opposition continued to grow due to the religious leaders spreading false witness about the things that Jesus said and did. Some called him mad. Others called him demon-possessed. His own family considered Jesus beside himself. You all understand beside yourself? You know, like if you have your own buddy right next to you, and it's you. That's being beside yourself a little Got it? His own family said, well, he's beside himself. So now you understand that. You don't need uh, Sigmund Freud to tell you. And when we last saw him, Jesus had gone to the place where John the Baptist first baptized, which was back in chapter 10, verse 40. But it was a place called Beth Abara. Bethabara, about 20 miles away from Bethany. 20 miles away, 20 miles a little bit north and, 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 and east of Bethany. In fact, we know that because of John chapter 1 verse 28 when we first meet John the Baptist. Because we're told in verse 28 of John chapter 1, these things were done in Bethabara beyond Jordan where John was baptizing. So now we know where Jesus was in John chapter 11. And the interesting thing about the names Bethabara and Bethany, or Bethany, uh, the two towns that are mentioned here, is that both of them, even though they're different words, yet are very similar in meaning and understanding. So there was the Bethabara, which is on the other side of the Jordan, probably uh, taken from a different wording system, and and Bethany, which is... uh, is used there in nearness to Jerusalem. So this is where we begin the account of chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Let's read those. It says, Now a certain man was sick. And the word sick here means to be weak and feeble, to be impotent and diseased. So this is the understanding of being sick. Some of us, you know, we use the word sick and, you know, a lot of times it's, we don't want to go to work and we call in and we say, I'm calling in sick. And you're not all that sick. All right, I hope I'm not putting anybody in great uh, uh, guilt. Or maybe I should. Yeah, I'm I'm glad I'm putting you in guilt. Don't do that. (laughs) But it says that a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And then it says in verse 2, giving us a little more detail as to who these people were, it was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And therefore his sisters sent unto him saying, sent unto Jesus saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Now, did you notice in each of those three verses, the word sick is is written in each one? You would have thought that you just needed one time to say he was sick. So I'd say he was triply sick because he was sick in verse 1, and he was sick in verse 2, and he was sick in verse 3. But the key words in verse 3 is what they sent as a message to Jesus. They said... He whom thou lovest is sick. So getting back to these three verses together, there, there's something of great significance in the, in the first and seventh signs of Jesus' public ministry. The first sign and the seventh sign. Something of great significance. First of all, they begin and they end with a family. They begin and end with family. The first was at a wedding. The seventh was at a funeral. The gladdest and the saddest of life's experiences seems to cover all of our life experiences from beginning to end. At the first, he changed water into wine. At the seventh, he triumphed over the tomb consider that both were humanly impossible both signs both miracles were humanly impossible no one had ever turned water into wine by just speaking it into existence and no one had ever raised anyone from the dead by calling out their name humanly impossible So the first revealed, that is the changing of water to wine, revealed Jesus as the Lord of creation. The seventh sign revealed him as the creator and the giver of life. The family in Bethany was a very special family to Jesus. We don't know much about the family in chapter 2, other than the fact that Mary was invited and Jesus was invited and the disciples went. But we do know something about the family in chapter 11. Because as you read through the Gospels, they had always opened their home to Jesus when he was in and around Jerusalem, being that they lived about two miles outside of Jerusalem. Bethany was, uh, in fact, very near to the Mount of Olives, Matter of fact, it was on the road to the Mount of Olives by which most people entered into the city of Jerusalem through the Eastern Gate, coming down from the Mount of Olives. In fact, those of us who go to Israel, when we go, we always walk down that road to, uh, toward the city of Jerusalem. Their closeness to the Lord is, is seen in, in the fact that the sisters Mary and Martha felt free, they felt free to seek Jesus out. And in finding him to interrupt whatever he was doing to request his help for their sick brother, Lazarus. And that's significant because nowadays, you know, a lot of times people don't want to be bothersome to others. You know, they don't, you know, I didn't call you because, you know, we find out somebody might get sick. and We say, well, why didn't you call us? Well, y'all are so busy. Well, why don't we know? that's what we do. You know, you don't have to be worried about letting us know. We want you to know. Or we want you to tell us and want you to let us know. So we can pray for you or do whatever God wants us to do. So here they felt free. They sought him out. They, they, whatever he was doing, he was inter, interrupted with this request for help because of their sick brother Lazarus. Now John states that Bethany was the town of Mary and Martha, which is kind of an interesting thing, you know. That, that town, that's, that's the town of Mary and Martha. I'm sure many others live there. But these sisters were completely devoted to Jesus and lived for the glory of God. That city was known for those who were devoted to the Lord. It makes me really consider my own heart. You know, Would this city be known for any of us in the, the, in the time that we spend in telling people about the Lord or, or serving the Lord in some way? Oh, I've heard of El Paso. That's, that's the town where so-and-so, you know, from Calvary Chapel or whatever, you know, lives and serves the Lord there. Uh, it, it humbles you to think, you know, that people would know a place by the service that you give to the Lord. And they live for the glory of God. I'm always so blessed when, when people begin prayers by, first of all, acknowledging the Lord, by saying, Lord, we, we come to you and we just want to give you all the praise and all the honor and all the glory, because you're worthy of it. And we want to acknowledge you as the one that we come to for our needs and for our, uh, for our op- opportunities to lay before you the, the struggles of our lives, whatever it may be. They were devoted that way to the Lord Jesus. And then John identifies them even further by pointing out that Mary mentioned, the Mary that was mentioned was was the one who anointed Jesus with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Well, the fact that there are six Marys mentioned in the New Testament makes this identification helpful, lets us know a little bit more about the people that were calling out to Jesus. In fact, John doesn't record the incident that he mentions there in verse 2 until the next chapter, which means that the readers would have known this Mary from the other gospel accounts. You know, that Mary that anointed Jesus, you know, with the oil and wiped, her, wiped his, his feet with her hair. Now you know who it is. In fact, we'll talk about her in, next, in the next chapter. But there's a great lesson as we move on into verse 3 because this is the key verse here that we want to look at today. That there's, there is this great lesson for us here in verse 3. Notice that the sisters didn't tell Jesus what to do or how to heal their brother. They were just letting him know of a great need that they had. He whom thou lovest is sick. Did they need to say any more? Jesus didn't receive this message from the messenger and say, well, you know, I'd I'd really like to know how how, how sick he is. What's he sick of? I mean, what's he doing? Does sick mean sick or does sick mean not sick or what? I don't understand, you know. No, Jesus knew. Besides, Jesus knew before he even got the message that Lazarus was sick. Because of who Jesus is. It's in what the sisters sent to him. They were letting him know that they had a great need. And Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, he said, be careful or anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now think about that for just a moment. You know, you, 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 you lay before the Lord your supplications, you know, the things that you need in this life. You, 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 you pray, you, you ask him things, you lay things before him, but you do so with thanksgiving. And, and, and when you do that, there's a peace that says, I've, I've released these things to God. I've released them unto the Lord. Now I can have peace because he knows from my heart. Even though he already knows what's in my heart before I even ask. Yet he has that and he knows. <clears throat> and so that peace which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. I'll come back. We'll come back to this thought for, in just a moment. That's how we, how we deal with that. But, they, but these sisters simply said to Jesus by messenger, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Now the Greek word for lovest or love here is phileo, P-H-I-L-E-O, phileo, which speaks of brotherly, friendly, a friendly type of love, a brotherly love. In fact, it is the basis for the word Philadelphia. Philadelphia is, is made up of two Greek words, Phileo and Adelphos, which means Adelphos is brother, and Phileo, of course, is this kind of love, so brotherly love. Uh, it's it's uh, love as in the church of uh, Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, called the church of brotherly love. And again, nothing could be more simple nor more modest than this prayer. He whom thou lovest is sick. They don't say in message, Come and heal him this way or that way, or command this disease to depart and it will obey thee. Instead, they, they just simply said, He's sick. And you love him very much. And so you cannot abandon him, but you can show your power and your goodness. Lord, the one that you love is sick. Now, we're actually going to only do verse, verse up to verse 4, but I'm going to read verses 4, 5, and 6 for context. So just letting you know, we're going to be in chapter 11 for a while. Kind of preparing you. So let's look at verse four. When Jesus heard that, he said, "Now notice this." He said, "This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God that the Son of God might be glorified thereby." So we're going to focus on that in just a moment. But let me read the next two verses. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister. And Lazarus. Now, he didn't just love them with brotherly kindness and love. He loved them with agapao, with agape love. That is another Greek word that describes that kind of love as an unconditional love that comes from and is seen from God himself. An unconditional love. And he loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, now you would say he hears that he's sick. You think he'd do one of two things. Either he would just speak the word and Lazarus would be healed instantly from 20 miles away because he's already done that. He did that in chapter 4 for the nobleman's son. Or he would get right on the road and get going. But when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was, which was in Bethabara, where John first baptized, 20 miles away. And he stayed for two more days. So the proverbial clock was ticking. First, it would have taken the messenger the better part of an entire day to reach Jesus in Bethabara. That's one day. More than likely, he sent the messenger back with his reply, verse 4, the next day. Day two. And then Jesus waited how many more days? Two more days. Two full days that he waited before he left to Bethabara, that he left Bethabara to head for Bethany. That's days three and four. And as we shall see, by the time he and his disciples arrive, Lazarus was dead four days. We'll see that later. But he was dead four days, which means that he had died the day the messenger left to contact Jesus. But getting back to what Jesus sent as a message to the sisters, Mary and Martha, his statement would have been considered an encouragement. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now, had that message gotten there before Lazarus died, that certainly would have been encouraging. The fact of the matter is, if it took the... the, the, the messenger another full day to get there by the time he got there with a message and Lazarus was already dead what good would it have been yet they're missing the point because we keep seeing the the statement of Jesus from our perspective we keep seeing it from the, 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 the perspective of the flesh but what this meant from Jesus' perspective This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. What this meant from Jesus' perspective is that death is not going to claim and keep this man at the present time. Instead, the Lord is going to be glorified in some great and miraculous way. So Jesus knew exactly what he was saying, and he knew exactly what he was doing. So when you think of it in these terms there really was no hurry on the part of Jesus to get to Bethany. And he even used the very tradition that a person is officially dead on the fourth day to say now there's no doubt that when I raise him from the dead he was dead. He was completely dead dead so again from Jesus perspective there's no hurry on the part of Jesus to get to Bethany but but doesn't that just cause all kinds of trials for us doesn't that just sometimes get under our skin a little bit do you know why I mean we, we, we we always want his intervention immediately we want his intervention without delay isn't this how we pray every day? We we probably wouldn't admit it, but we pray with great desperation almost every day. Oh dear God. I mean, you know we get we get uh, prayer requests every day from people and and we pray for them on that day, but we, we we know one thing. We are to commit these people to God's hands, we're in God's hands uh and God's time, you know, he does wondrous things. But sometimes we we just find ourselves just commi- you know, just praying, Lord Jesus, oh my God, Lord Jesus. We need this now, 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 now. Now, the good thing is God understands us and God is very patient with us. Always is, always has been. But I certainly would hope that we would take hold of the perspective of the psalmist under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who writes in Psalm 62, verses 5 through 8, who says, my soul... Wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times. You people pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Meditate upon that for a while. That's what Selah means. So the lessons that we must learn from this passage of John 11 is that even though the Lord often seems to wait so long in answering our pleas, he appears indifferent to our needs, but that is so far from the truth. He's never indifferent. He is always interested in our needs. Always. I mean, folks, as I said earlier, it's not about knowing about Jesus. It's about knowing him. And the one thing you need to know about him is that he cares for you. He cares for you and he loves you. The apostles knew this better than anyone. Oh my goodness, they tested Jesus all the time. But Jesus was so perfect in his love and patience. Sometimes he got after him. That was part of his love and patience. And the one that we oftentimes render the most... uh, (laughs) of this impatience was Peter. Yet it was Peter, the apostle, who wrote these words in his first letter to the church when he writes in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. First of all, he says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting, verse 7, casting all your care upon him for he careth for you casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. He cares for you. This is the very same Peter, who was the only disciple and and apostle That when Jesus was walking on the water one day, when they were having a rough time and trying to control the sea or the boat on the sea, that Jesus called out to them and said, come to me on the water. Just come out and walk on the water. Jesus was on the water and the only one who got out was Peter. And Peter began to walk to Jesus and he kept his eyes on Jesus and as long as he did that the storm stayed below him the the, the waves and the water stayed below him but as soon as he focused his attention upon the storm and upon the sea he began to sink and what was his prayer? He didn't go into some long uh, dissertation on the uh, theology of God and of whatever else he just said Lord help a simple kind of prayer that Mary and Martha sent to Jesus and Jesus pulled him out of the water and they walked back to the boat together. The very same Peter who would later on deny Jesus three times and find himself so guilt ridden that he had to be encouraged to go where Jesus was after the resurrection. and learned of God's care and of God's mercy when Jesus questioned three times and said, Do you love me, Peter? Then feed my sheep. He knew what it meant to cast all of his care upon Jesus because he knew that Jesus cared for him. You know that scripture speaks of waiting on God and waiting for God. Scripture speaks of waiting on God and waiting for God. Well, it ought to be something we should do every day as believers in Jesus Christ. Wait on God and wait for God. And it is certainly a good and wonderful thing to learn to wait upon the Lord. And this would be a good time for us to close out this first study in John chapter 11 with the words that come through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 40, verses 27 through 31. And I want to preface this particular passage with the fact that when you, read the God, when you read the book of Isaiah, you realize that in places like this, where he is crying out at the very beginning of the chapter to the, to the, Jews, to the Jewish people, he says, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Is it, listen, uh, there's all kinds of calamities coming upon us because of our disobedience, because of our rebellion toward God and all. It, it affected both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel had already captives in Assyria, and there were those who were already being sent to, uh, getting ready to be sent to Babylon. And so this this word that is coming to these people at a time of their great struggle and their great trial and their their great need is the message that we are to receive as well from it in the fact that we are living in, in these dangerous, perilous times and how we need to trust in God by waiting on God and waiting for God. So with that in mind, it says in verse 27 of Isaiah 40, Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, Fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord Shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We used to sing this song as a chorus years ago, and at the end of the of, of, of singing those verses in verse 31, or those those. Stanzas in verse 31, we all always ended by saying, uh, They shall walk in our faith. Teach us, Lord, to wait. Teach us, Lord, to wait. Because it is in waiting upon the Lord. Can you find yourself where Mary and Martha are? so concerned about their brother's illness to send a messenger to find Jesus 20 miles away and on that very day their brother passes and dies what can they do now what can we do now death affects us all it's our last enemy but Jesus on the cross said it is finished the work has been done to conquer sin and in three days death will be conquered as well And that last enemy, even though it'll be around for a while, will not overtake you. It will not have power over you. Paul said absent from the body, his presence is present with the Lord. But then Jesus, when he comes, Will gather us together in fact you know I have to tell you i'm I'm itching, not not itching this way, but I mean itching to get to John fourteen, because Jesus said, "Let not your heart be troubled. you know what we can what we can link that with with what Paul said to the church in Thessalonica when he said, comfort one another with these words. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am, there you will be also. Paul said, There'll be that shout from heaven, the trumpet of God will sound, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with him. Jesus said, Where I am, there you'll be. What a connection! What a promise! Don't let your heart be troubled. There is salvation in Christ, and that the salvation extends to that great promise. Before all of this world begins to destroy itself, Jesus will call us home. By death or rapture, we will be in his presence. So it is of utmost importance that we know Jesus Christ personally. Not just know about him, we must know him personally. And if you have joy in anything, you need to have joy in Jesus Christ. I can tell you this, we will be ecstatic if the Cowboys win today, right? Some of you, not all of you, I know, because y'all have your, your teams. But there's nothing like knowing the joy of salvation in Christ. Nothing. Nothing. So, give your life to Jesus. And then serve him. Serve him with joy. Serve him with gladness. And like Mary and Martha, live your lives by giving glory to God each and every day. And then keep looking up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Jesus is coming. Let's stand.